This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, everyone. Welcome in a new episode of our monthly podcast, Radar by Nextworks. And the good news is we're back in full force, all five of us. So I'm here with Laurence van Eelinghem, Peter Hinzen, Julie Vensdevos, and Pascal Coppens. So welcome to all of you in our new episode. Before we dive into the action, I just have to say, and this is specifically speaking to Peter, someone of our listeners challenged you uh, based on something you said in the last radar. So we need to address that first to make sure that we have all the details right there. So uh, Peter, we had this question or comment from Tom Carneval. And he was wondering if you weren't too forced last time about the ESG standards and how they are a jungle and a nightmare for companies. So that was your quote. It's a nightmare and a jungle. So he thinks that's a little bit too hard. And he says it's just the beginning of ESGs and maybe we need to, you know, give it the opportunity to find its way. And maybe we're going to have to learn how to deal with that. So he was wondering if you were too hard on that. And the second question he had is, What's the problem that you now have a number of organizations that actually give credits to companies and make evaluations to see if they are performing uh, well on those ESGs? Uh, you said that that is a complete disaster as well. Those were his two questions. So, Peter, what do you think? Well, uh, super questions, uh, first of all. And um, I kind of agree and I kind of disagree. So let me paint the picture here. Companies are going to be challenged more and more on their ESG activities, their ESG type of concepts that they're going to be dealing with. So this is going to be a big thing no matter what. The big question is somebody is going to have to evaluate that. And at this moment, what we have is very much an emerging scene because there isn't established patterns. And actually, Tom, in his lengthy question, also actually gave a little bit of a, a background on that. If you look at, for example, financial standards, I mean, accounting practices, this is something that we started to do a really long time ago. And now after hundreds of years, we can finally understand how to really assess a company, whether they're actually financially doing well or doing bad. And I think that is something which has taken a lot of effort from a lot of people over decades and decades and decades. And even now, I mean, new accounting standards, for example, are still being developed. Uh, something like IFRS. I remember when that was a new standard and now you have IFRS 17, yeah, you know, focusing just on, for example, what it means to look at accounting practices for the insurance sector. So in finance, this is a well-established practice and that's where we have really, really strong rating agencies that are capable of really giving valuable data. In ESG, it is still a little bit the wild west out there and it is growing and I don't think that we don't have to do it, but we have to be cautious. And one of the reasons that um, I probably lashed out like that is I'm on the board of a bank, as you know. In Europe, what we have is that the European Commission is very, very serious about climate. I mean, we're going to see that more and more. And banks since 2008 have had to do stress testing. I mean, banks almost fell over in 2008. We had the big crisis in finance. Since then, every bank has to do extremely regular tests to see if they can actually survive another economic or financial disaster. And that means that you have 
really in banks, armies of people crunching numbers to do all sorts of simulations, what would happen in terms of a financial catastrophe and what that would actually mean. And that is very, very rigid and very well done. There's a lot of cost involved for the banks to be able to do that. Now Europe said, we're gonna do exactly the same for climate. And that's where I think we might have to challenge that a little bit because at the moment, you know, if I look at, for example, the banks, they don't have that information. What the European Central Bank would like to do is that they would like these banks to run climate stress tests where they have to look at, for example, their retail customer and the mortgages of the houses that they have. Are these houses insulated enough? Are they actually matching energy criteria? What's going to happen if the government takes certain measures? Really brilliant you know, things to investigate, but we just don't have the data. I mean, when you look at the corporate world, banks are going to have to assess what the impact would be of certain climate measures and what some of their enterprise customers would do to actually remedy that. But we don't have that data. So I think we're going to see a huge crisis of data. And as you know, there is one fundamental mechanism in IT, garbage in, garbage out. If you take the wrong type of input data, no matter how brilliant the algorithms are, you're going to actually get something which is probably not the right outcome. And that's, I think, my main concern. And I understand Tom's question. First of all, we shouldn't do it as a result of that. We should do it. But maybe what we now see is that we're putting a lot of very high hopes on these early results, and that's not going to happen. This is something that we need to refine over the next years, probably the next decade, to get it right. So I think we need that data, but at this moment, the data just isn't there. And I give one last example. 3M is a company that we all know. It's a global brand. If you look at some of the credit agencies there, and especially the ESG rating agencies, a company like 3M gets a triple A rating globally. But of course, in Belgium, where we live, you know, 3M has a little bit of a negative connotation because we had one plant in the vicinity of Antwerp that had a huge contamination of PFAS. And if you ask the people around Antwerp about 3M, they're just not going to be able to understand why it gets globally a triple A rating. And the problem is that 3M is a huge company where they have factories around the world that are probably not really good for the planet and the environment, but at the same time, they have a, a healthcare division that is saving lives. How can you actually take a company like that and have one average rating where you probably need a lot more nuance and a lot more detail to really be able to crunch the numbers? So excellent question from Tom. I fully agree that we shouldn't do it as a result of that. We have to do it. But at the first instance, I think we're going to see a lot of confusion because the quality of the input data just unfortunately isn't there yet. All right. Thank you, Peter. And Tom, let us know what you think if you enjoyed this answer or if you want to challenge Peter further on this topic. Let's dive into our radar topics of this month. And we're going to start with, uh, with the Super Bowl. As the marketing guy of the group, I'm always really fascinated about the biggest advertising party of the world. That's how you can call the Super Bowl. The halftime show was amazing. But I want to focus a little bit on the advertising here because it's always interesting to see how you know, storytelling is evolving and where the focus is of those ads. But also something that really impressed me was the number of people who actually watched the game this year. There were 36 million households who watched the game, which is more than one out of four families. 
And the crazy thing, in my opinion, is that it was an increase of 12% compared to last year. Whereas if you go to the US now, it's, it's really the land of the free. There are hardly any COVID restrictions. People are just shopping or having fun. The stadium was fully filled. And last year, we were all locked up. And still, there's an increase of 12% of people watching the game. So the audience is growing, which makes it more interesting for advertisers, obviously. And the prices are still sky high. If you want to run a commercial during the Super Bowl, it's a $7 million ticket per 30 seconds. And if you know that most of those ads last about one minute, you know the media spent that they have to get there. If I look to the overall trend of the ads, the one thing that I see is that trying to be funny was the overall trend. Uh, you always see funny commercials at the Super Bowl, but this time every single company tried to be funny. Some succeed, some completely failed. Uh, one of my favorites that I thought was really funny was the Alexa mind-treating one where you had uh, Scarlett Johansson starring in the, in the show, uh, where they tried to tell us what would happen if Alexa just grows into the future as some sort of a mind-reading machine. You can imagine what happens if that would happen. The getting stuck in a Pringles box was pretty funny for me. Most people thought it was really stupid, but I thought it was, it was funny. But where I want to focus on is some interesting differences between Facebook's ad and Salesforce ad, for instance. I don't know if you have seen the Facebook ad. It was all about the metaverse, obviously, but it was really dark, in my opinion. I completely disliked that ad. It was a story of this teddy bear that had a wonderful life in the metaverse. He was like a rock star. He was a hero. Everyone was cheering. But then when he took off his VR goggles, he actually had the most miserable life you can imagine. Uh, no one treated him well. He was sad. He was lonely. Didn't have any friends. So the message was basically, if your life sucks, there's always the metaverse to make you feel good. And I don't know if that's the way you want to position VR and the metaverse, in my opinion. So I was really, really surprised. It's cool and it's made in a beautiful way. But the message, in my opinion, was completely dark and completely wrong. And if you then benchmark that with another huge tech company like Salesforce, that was the complete opposite. Uh, Salesforce actually made this video that started out saying, oh, look, this is space and those are new frontiers. And then they said, no, we don't need to go to Mars. I let other people worry about getting to Mars. We're going to worry about this planet. And then they had this very beautifully made video saying, uh, showing all the efforts that they do and what the possibilities are to save the planet and really positioning them differently than all other tech companies. Not focusing on tech, but really focusing on their purpose. So I like that comparison. Another conclusion is that there was a lot of Web3 in the Super Bowl where the goal really was to explain people what crypto is, to make it easier to adopt. I saw this wonderful commercial by Crypto.com, one of the fast growing wallets out there. I'm, I'm gonna actually use it in my keynotes because what they've done is they made this whole historic movie where all kind of really important innovations came along like the wheel or the telephone and they showed all the possibilities of that but every time they also showed how people disliked that innovation. And then they ended, obviously, with crypto. So I loved that one. But the one that was talked most about is the ad from Coinbase. I'm sure you have seen the ad from Coinbase. Um, basically, it was a flying QR code that was bouncing up and down the screen. And if you scanned it, you could get some Bitcoins or some other cryptocurrencies for free. And this was the hit of the Super Bowl. 
which is amazing yeah? because they actually paid $14 million in media to get their QR code bouncing up and down. And the cost of making the ad was $14. They just asked someone to make a QR code that could bounce up and down. But it was such a success that everyone was scanning the QR code that actually became a failure because the website went down and couldn't handle all the visitors and all the people that wanted to try out Coinbase. So that was cool. So if I have to summarize it, I think it was a great advertising show this year, uh, showing that people really want to enjoy themselves, making it fun, but also making it possible to discover new things and go out on new adventures in the Web3 world. Cool. Did you actually see any of them that I talked about? I saw the crypto.com uh, one and yeah. the Coinbase. Yeah. The yeah. Coinbase, of course, was uh, yeah, all, just over the place, the, eh? all over the place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But check out the Facebook one, because that, that was for me the most shocking one. And really hard to understand that that is the way that they want to position the metaverse uh, as an alternative for a lousy life. And talking about the metaverse, Peter, I know that you follow everything that happens from Walmart. And we saw this article saying Walmart is getting serious about the metaverse. What are they doing? Well, we don't actually know what they're doing. I think all we really know is that they are indeed getting quite serious about it. And the reason is that you know, we see two things that are quite interesting. One is they're hiring a lot of people that are related to the bigger Web 3.0. And of course, that's the way that you can get some sort of an insight into what a company does. So we see that they're hiring people in the crypto space. They want to hire people that are in the AR, VR space. They want to hire people that are clearly into that big metaverse type of skill set. But at the same time, they're also filing a number of patents. And that's always interesting because that's always an interesting insight into where a company is going, maybe not tomorrow, but maybe in the long term. And they want to put their stake into the ground and figure out what they really want to do. So one of the things is they filed a couple of trademarks. And just look at the names. They filed trademarks like Verse to Home or Verse to Curb or Verse to Store. So they really want to think about how to take that, you know, metaverse world and figure out a way to actually get that connected to the Walmart environment, the Walmart infrastructure. And I think that's going to be an interesting thing because I can imagine that just like we had it in, you know, the previous generations of web technology where you needed to figure out how to connect, say, for example, a game environment to the real world where you can get some sort of rewards or some sort of an incentive, but some sort of a link or even a link to real e-commerce. So making a link from that virtual world and that Web3 world to the physical infrastructure that Walmart has makes sense. And whether that is you know, curbside pickup or the physical stores, I think we're going to have to see what it means. Now, I like the idea what you said about gamifying the world. Huh? Um, we've been talking a lot about gamification but then it was you have to push a button and something happens. But now it's really gamifying the world. And I love the fact that a company like Walmart, which is the most traditional grocery store, they basically invented the whole system, is now looking at these virtual worlds. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's going to be something where if they can play a role there, I've really seen Walmart over the last couple of years as really extremely innovative at not just playing the old game, but trying to figure out how they can connect that to the new. And I think what Walmart did in the past is they said, oh, 
we have our traditional business, and then there's a new business, and they gave that up. I mean, they had some really, really expensive acquisitions like Jet.com, which really didn't work out for them. And they said, we're not gonna do that anymore. We're not gonna take the future as something different. We're gonna take the future as something that we incorporate into our way of working. And if they can do that and find a way to link the metaverse to that infrastructure, if they can think about gamification, for example, I think we're gonna see really, really cool opportunities. The second thing that might be really interesting for Walmart is just the financial aspect of it, meaning finding some way to have cryptocurrency or some form of virtual currency to actually play a role in what they do. Now, that is inherently not a new thing. I mean, if I go to the car wash three miles from where we live, that car wash is a really, really clever car wash because I can't just start that with normal coins. I first have to buy the car wash coins. And of course, normally you would put in like one euro or two euro and get one or two car wash coins to start washing your car. But for some reason, that never works. You have to put in 20 euros. So you get like a, a bag of coins where you only use two or three, and then you throw the rest in your car, and the next time that you go to the car wash, you actually forgot where those coins are, so you put in another. So a really clever trick that they do. It's the oldest trick in the book of inventing your own little coin or your own little token, and I think that's what we're gonna see now in the metaverse. That's what we're gonna see in Web 3.0, and that's the second thing that Walmart is heavily investing in, figuring out if they can build their own currency environment where Things like loyalty points actually can really generate you know, savings or opportunities for their customers, but keeping that inside their own Walmart control. And I think that's probably what we're gonna see in the next decade. It's an explosion of their own platforms, their own ecosystems with their own currencies. And it's not just gonna be Walmart that does that. I think we're gonna see probably an explosion where probably in a few years time, if you open up your virtual wallet, you're gonna see a shitload of coins, you know, from all sorts of platforms and ecosystems. And then the question is, which one is gonna be strong enough to survive? And Walmart certainly has the stamina, the size, and the footprint to maybe become a real player in that virtual currency space. Yeah, and, and, and some people say, yeah, but why would they create their own currency? But I think this can fundamentally change customer loyalty Customer engagement, ah, this is something completely new than just saving points on your customer card to get then a discount a month later. I mean, if you have your Walmart coins and you, you save them and Walmart is doing well and the value of the coin evolves positively, then actually you as a customer, you benefit from the success of Walmart in a completely different way than just getting a bread for free if you bought 10 breads. This is giving you skin in the game. It becomes a shared interest. Ah, which also means probably if you have a lot of Walmart coins that you will really become an ambassador of Walmart because you're gaining money if they are successful. So the, this whole system of coins creates a philosophy of a shared interest between a company and a customer, which will completely reinvent customer loyalty, if you ask me. I, I fully agree. And I think maybe one of the biggest disappointments that I've seen during COVID is that the airlines didn't act on that because um, we've all been saving up True. airline points and loyalty points and we all have you know, um, hundreds of thousands of miles stacked up. We couldn't use it in the last two years because we couldn't fly, we couldn't travel. And I think it's such a disappointment that the airline industry, which was hit so bad, 
didn't think creatively about leveraging that, maybe turning that into you know, some sort of a virtual way to, to trade, to really make that more liquid, to do something interesting. They could have created airline coins or you know, airline miles coins or whatever to do something really interesting where that value could have been something that would have been a whole new set of opportunities for the airlines. And they didn't have that. I mean, all we now have is, is old dusty you know, air points and, and miles that we couldn't use. But I think it's, it's a wasted opportunity. So if the retail sure. sector, and, and in this case, Walmart can do something creative, I think we might be seeing something really interesting. Yeah, fully agree. When it comes to games, I mean, in China with Pinduoduo, this actually created the whole e-commerce environment on itself. And I'm not going to expand too much on it, but the fact that they got hundreds of millions of people to start buying products from a company that was unknown and in five years time became bigger than Alibaba in terms of customers is really just because it was all about playing games. And, and everybody in the whole China was playing simple games. And when they played well, they actually got products for free. And this is how actually Pingdodo grew in just five years to become the biggest company in e-commerce, uh, beating Alibaba. So I think if they can do it, Walmart can do it for sure. Uh, this is really the start of a new era for retail. I just want to add just one thing. Um, Peter talked about hiring, that Walmart was hiring a lot for Web3. And uh, I just noticed something pass on, on Twitter where they listed some of the companies hiring for crypto jobs. And it's really not the big tech ones. You have all the companies too. It's like they have JP Morgan and, and MasterCard and Goldman Sachs and the Bank of America. Obviously also Disney and PayPal and Google and Visa. And so it's pretty insane how many people are, are really looking into this and, and investing in this. I mean, the question is going to be, Laurence, is that are these people going to actually have a real opportunity to build something? Because I remember when social media was the new thing, every company wanted to hire a social media specialist. But sometimes you saw these people, you know, they were just like trophy hires. I mean, a company and a CEO could say, oh, but we have a social media specialist. They had n no idea what they were going to do. They often had no idea to actually, you know, develop that into something meaningful. And probably a lot of those crypto hires are probably going to be trophy hires as well, where a CEO could say, oh, well, no, we, ha we have a coin specialist. We have a crypto specialist. Whether they actually have the capability to really build that out, that's still, I think, debatable. Laurence, I'm going to jump to you. you. You wanted to talk about something that I think is really, really cool. There's this startup from Israel that is building an electric highway in Detroit, which is fantastic. Huh? As we all know, is Detroit is like the capital of the automotive industry or was the capital of the automotive industry. So what are the plans there? Well, yeah, like you said, uh, Detroit used to be really the heart of the American automotive industry, and it even had Motor City as its nickname. But unfortunately, like you said, it used to be um, as of the 1950s, it experienced a real decline, and there were multiple reasons for that. There was um, the Packard motor car factory that went out of business. There were severe racial tensions, ending in rich white people leaving the city. There was a lot of competition surfacing, like foreign cars from Japan and from other countries, which were obviously smaller and cheaper and more fuel efficient. And by 
2013, the city of Detroit had to file for bankruptcy, which is actually the largest municipal bankruptcy filing in the U.S. history. Um, but today, it seems that they are trying to reclaim the mobility industry with a really fascinating project. Actually, it's a test. It's an electric highway for wireless EV charging on the go. And what that actually means is that the road charges your car while you are driving. It's going to be held the test in the mobility-focused innovation district of Detroit, which is called Michigan Central, which has the aim to reshape the future of global mobility, is what they say. And so it's, in fact, indeed, the Israeli startup Electrion that is going to design, build, and test this. Um, and the aim is that it will be operational by 2023, so that's really pretty soon. And so how does it work? I'm not going to get too technical about this, but Electrion is going to insert copper coils in the road and then electricity is transferred from the grid to these coils and then the only thing that you need is a receiver on the floor of the vehicle which is going to charge your car as you are on the go. Of course, it's important that this project concerns a one-mile stretch of road, which is 1.6 kilometers. So it really is still in an experimental phase. Now, when it comes to the benefits, they are, I think, quite obvious. It's going to solve some of the biggest drawbacks of electric vehicles, which are long charging times, lack of charging stations in some regions and even in some countries. And the result will obviously be a much better user experience. And then the second thing, maybe a little less obvious, is that you are going to be able to greatly decrease the battery size the costs and the weight of the batteries. And so this is one of the first projects of its kind uh, of an electric highway, but it's not the first because in Germany, they are building a wireless electric road system for an electric shuttle bus. And there are several projects underway in Italy, in Sweden and in Tel Aviv. And so before everybody starts to become overjoyed, will this mean that private car owners can uh, charge while driving really soon? Well, no, because first of all, it's a test phase. And second, unfortunately for now, this project will only in this phase concern buses and other heavy duty vehicles. But all in all, cool projects, fantastic improvement of UX. What's also great is that they will be able to reuse a lot of existing infrastructure. So no need for a new grid infrastructure or no need for new transformation stations. And I just want to end with a small side note is the fact that EVs may be a lot better than fossil fuel cars for the environment, but they do still have an impact on the environment, which is manufacturing electric vehicles also produces emissions and even more so than for regular cars because of their batteries. Also, not all electricity is produced by green energy. Some grids are still really coal heavy and that has an impact on emissions. Now, the good news here is that most countries are cleaning up their electric grids to go in the direction of more green energy. And the last thing is that mining the raw materials for electric vehicle batteries like cobalt and lithium that has a severe impact on environment, even on human rights. And so what we want is not just cars that are less harmful for the environment, but what we want is less vehicles in total on the road. And we want a balance of transportation, which is private EVs, buses, trains and bike sharing. But all in all, I think that this electric highway in Detroit is a really cool project.
Yep, it's really cool, Laurence. And I, um, uh, you were saying about this last thing about mining. I just want to say one thing is that Huawei wants to become the world leader in remote mining to actually help with all the problems when it comes to human rights and other problems. Uh, so they, they really want to make sure that through 5G, specifically in Africa, that they can actually go into remote mining. And another interesting story maybe to add on your story is that um, in Beijing now, I don't know if you saw that video online, but in Beijing now, they're investigating and they're looking at um, uh, for charging cars instead of the car going to a charging station to have the charging station go to the car. And so you see all these little self-driving cars now going to the cars to charge the cars. And I thought this was an interesting, cool concept. Uh, maybe that will work as well. So just wanted to add to your story. And, and let me make one critical remark. I love the idea, but overall, I think throughout history, we've seen that if you take something like a road or a highway and you try to upgrade that, it's often a really, really challenging thing. I mean, it might be interesting to take like one proof of concept and say, that's a stretch of highway that we're going to implement that. But it's the overall complexity that, you know, this is an infrastructure play. And that is really, really difficult to massively scale that out into the bigger environment. I mean, roads are notoriously difficult to actually upgrade. So I'm sure they're going to be able to build a really, really interesting proof of concept. I'm not sure if you can actually scale that throughout a bigger region or even a nation. I mean, uh, I saw a really, really stupid joke the other day. What's the difference between the decline of the U.S. and the decline of the Roman Empire? And the answer was the Roman Empire had better roads. Uh, so I think uh, uh, upgrading roads is a huge thing. And I, I'm not sure if you can scale that from the proof of concept to, to the bigger picture. Julie, you spent your holiday at Dubai Expo, or you went to Dubai and visited the Expo. One, I was there as well a few weeks ago. One of the topics was mobility. Uh, one of the topics was sustainability. Um, what did you learn? What are your conclusions of visiting Dubai Expo? Yeah, one of the crazy things about the UK Pavilion was as well, I mean, it's all about technology and making a simple awareness of that. But at the Pavilion itself, it was not that much of a show. I mean, it was a human being that had to explain, like, this is how it works and this is what this all is for. And I think overall in the expo, you were really led by technology into stories, into experiences. And then having a human being telling you something about the country, about a technology or about a new fact or figure, that was just really original, apparently, all of a sudden. So that, that was really cool to see as well. I think one country that, of course, was very amazing as well was the United Arab Emirates, the hosting country. I mean, what a pavilion. Kunrat, our chairman of, of Nextworks, is going to love that because uh, Calatrava also saw it as an opportunity to show how a building can also be an agent for sustainability. So the whole concept of the building is like the falcon, uh, which is a symbolic animal of the UAE as well. And the wings of that bird could actually go up and down to allow solar panels to function. So that was just great that that building as such told the story as well. But I think in general, also the country and how they just screamed ambition and unity was just really impressive. I think being there, feeling that in a very positive, serene way, I think really impressed me. So I think they really did a good job in uh, in doing that. 
And brings me to the second learning. I mean, how stories are told. It was not the metaphors, this expo. It's, it's a very physical uh, event, but it was immersive. I mean, all five senses are being played at those pavilions. And if you just have like a museum walk, that's boring. I had no way which was like six screens next to each other. And that was boring because you had pavilions like Japan who really lead you in a one hour show of music senses. They made it very personal with, for example, giving you a sort of avatar flower so that throughout that journey, they speak to you and you really feel you feel like part of the story that we have to build. Their topic, for example, was sustainability. And at a certain moment, you're watching a huge wall with facts and fires. And I mean, it's, it feels pretty bad. You're like, oh, my God. And then you have to turn around and you look into a mirror where people also acknowledge like, oh, my God. Yeah, what can I do? So very simple, creative ways to tell the story. But you leave the pavilion in a way that you feel empowered and inspired to do something with it. I think a similar surprise was Kazakhstan. I wanted to visit that because we once had the ambition to go to Astana. And I told my husband as well, like, hey, but just watch Kazakhstan. I mean, I want to see what these guys are doing. And they also did a great job of combining the human and the digital elements. So um, you were really welcomed by a human being. I mean, that was an exception in these pavilions. So you were welcomed into their steppe and you had the beautiful nature of the country that was exposed uh, via little hubs where people talk to you so you could have a conversation. And then, of course, they bridged that to technology and it ended with a sort of dance of a robot and a human being. So it was really cool how they um, sort of combined that. And I think it's it's uh, it's telling that post-pandemic, where we've all missed that human element so much, that you really get to celebrate that in uh, in an expo like that. So I mean, I'm going to ramble for hours uh, about all the things that you can see and learn, but um, I think it's good to have a discussion uh, about that. Did you walk around there after dark, Julie? Yeah, of course, of course. It's amazing. Eh? It's like the most beautiful place you can imagine with all the lights and the uh, atmosphere. It was just. Amazing. And I agree with you. I think the pavilion of the Emirates was just amazing. I love their quote saying, we're a country of dreamers and doers. And you walk in and you're in the desert. And then they basically say, you know what, Dubai 25 years ago was just a desert. And you have lovers and haters for Dubai and the Emirates. So you have people that say, ah, it's not authentic, it's fake and all that. But I have to say, I was really, really impressed. Like you say, the positivity of the country, the ambitions, the dreams, but also the level of customer service. In my opinion, the best customer service I ever had was in my last week in Dubai, both in the hotel and public transportation with their COVID test centers everywhere. And there was this taxi driver that told me the most amazing thing. He said that uh, Dubai will now reorganize its weekend throughout the course of this year. Uh, in, in the Arabic world, the weekend is on Fridays and Saturdays. In the Western world, it's on Saturdays and Sundays. And they decided to change the weekend and align it with the Western world. Put the weekend on Saturdays and Sundays because that will be better for doing business with the West. And I was thinking, how crazy is that? Uh, imagine that we would decide in Europe that we have to change our weekends to do business with the Chinese or people in the Middle East. I mean, it would be riots all over the place. We cannot even decide if we want to keep the winter hour or the summer hour. That seems to be the hardest decision ever. And they are just like, you know what? We're going to change the weekend because that's better for business. And that shows for me the mindset of ambition and flexibility 
And I had the feeling when I was there, Julie, that this is where it's happening. Eh? This is where new things happen. This is where positivity happens, where you can grab opportunities if you're willing to do so. So I was also really, really impressed with the expo. Talking about things that uh, are happening outside of the West, just maybe related to the expo, it's kind of a, something that we should have on our radar at least, is that in Macau, there's a new expo opening up. I mean, it has opened uh, this year, uh, no, last year, 2021, uh, last quarter. And it's a real competitor for the Consumer Electronics Show from Las Vegas, CES. And it's called Beyond. I don't know if you heard about it. Yeah. One of the big parts is almost similar to CES. There's a lot of uh, consumer tech coming from Asia these days. But on top of that, and I think that's interesting, is they're adding a few more topics to that show. And one is all about healthcare, biotech, medtech, biopharma. One is all about sustainability, urban development, agri-tech, and food tech specifically. And so you see that they're starting to combine these expos with not just consumer tech, but how this also gets into sustainability, how it gets into the healthcare, into people's lives. And of course, there's a meta expo into that as well. It wouldn't, uh, that's what they need to do. So these are the new things that are happening in China as well. I mean, it's in Macau, I mean, the Las Vegas of the East. I feel that people are going to go in January to CES, and then they're going to go in September to beyond. That's what you're going to see more and more. Next year will be September 21st to 24th, so just so you know. You think it's worth going there if you don't speak Chinese? You think they're going to in build Macau, this internationally? No yeah, there's no problem. no problem in Macau, yeah. There's uh, no issue, yeah. So you also think we'll be able to enter China then? <laughs> Well, Macau is uh, until 2049 still uh, <laughs> kind of uh, not part of China and part of China at the same time. So, uh, yeah, there's no issue to go into Macau normally. Okay, then we need to uh, organize a tour there. Yeah, we you should all go mind. there. I agree. Yeah, 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 we should do that and, and let's experience how that goes. Yeah, yeah yep. very good idea. Uh, Pascal, we had some light topics so far, Dubai Expo, the Metaverse, Super Bowl advertising. Now we're going into the serious stuff. Huh? You wanted to talk about uh, some geopolitical issues that are happening and how China is supporting Russia against NATO expansion in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. How do we need to read that as people from Europe and the West? Can you give us some insights there? Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Because, I mean, it's a very small topic uh, about a new world order that is being created. Uh, and so people in the, in the Western media have been talking about it because the war or the imminent uh, threat of the war in Ukraine actually there's not been much attention on China and, and Russia's getting closer to each other. Now, you remember last uh, month at Radar, we talked about the Olympic Games, and so there was this yeah. boycott. And what happened is that um, most of the Western diplomats did not go to Beijing because they wanted to boycott it. Of course, who showed up? Vladimir Putin, and he got front seats, and he had all the time he could to spend with Xi Jinping. And out of that meeting, which lasted quite long, came a sixth thousand word joint statement. And this is the very first time that China and Russia have created a statement to tell the world how they think likewise and what their issue is with the world, if you could say. And so it's really an interesting thing to read. I've read it really three, four times in detail. You should all read it because it's really telling what China has been trying to tell for many years. The world hasn't been listening much to what China wants to do. Now, China uses Russia as a platform or a megaphone to tell the world 
this is what we want because everybody's looking at what Russia is doing right now in Ukraine. So there's kind of like this interesting partnership. But what's interesting is that in the beginning of this statement, there's just a couple of paragraphs. I mean, one big paragraph to introduce it. And they talk about the transformation of global governance architecture and a world order. And so it's really about saying that the world is changing. And there's a distribution or redistribution, they say literally, of the power in the world, and that the international community is asking for new leadership to step up to actually make sure that there's peaceful development and a gradual development of this world. Of course, many of the Western media are reading into that, is that China and Russia want to create a new world order. But if you read the rest of the 6,000 words, which most people don't, (laughs) then actually it explains that everything is evolutionary. It's not about creating something new. And China specifically, and Russia as well, want to somehow be more and more close to the international world order, but they want to be listened to. And so this is interesting because all the attention went to Ukraine, Ukraine and what happens there. And because of that, people have not seen actually this major getting closer between Russia and China on all levels. And um, if you look at the detail, I'm not going to go into too much detail, but one of the things that everybody's noticing is that Russia and China say in that statement that they are proud to be a democracy and abide according to the universal human rights. And so this on itself has angered, of course, the whole world, Western world, But it's interesting to see how they explain that they are a democracy. It's more success-based rather than system-based. It's it's, it's something to look into. But also the fact that they really want to be part, they want to play along with everybody else in the same way. And this is something where they say, if we want to reach our United Nations sustainability goals, the climate change, we want to tackle COVID, we want to create all these systemic shocks that Peter always talks about, We cannot be on our own. You cannot be on our own. We have to do this together. And because of that, we also need to step up and be responsible leaders. So very interesting statement. On the geopolitical, that's a lot. And I'm not going to go into detail because it's it's really a lot. But it's about not wanting to create a new Cold War. That's what China and Russia want. Of course, Taiwan was on the discussion there. China really understands that Russia asks for security guarantees from NATO, from the West, And that is something that wasn't said before. So China does not support the war in Ukraine. Let's be clear about that. They really don't want this. It's very clear. They don't want to escalate anything. But they do feel that if the rest of the world would actually put sanctions on Russia, that China would actually help them out. And they would help them out because they feel that otherwise the Western world, specifically America, because there's a lot of anti-American talk in there, America is really trying to strangle with the financial currency the whole uh, East, specifically Russia and China and many places in the world. And one of the interesting things is that during the meeting between Xi Jinping and Putin, they signed, I I heard it was an 80 billion US dollar gas deal, so not a small thing. And guess in which currency this was done? It's done in euro, not in the US dollar. And so what you're seeing is that actually China is starting, and Russia as well, to figure out ways to decouple more and more from the US dollar. And that angers, of course, America. So there's a lot of things happening in the background from this Ukraine war 
that is not talked about much in the media, but it's very important to see it because there's a redistribution happening of power uh, in certain ways that is getting accelerated because of all the tensions right now in Ukraine. And Ukraine seems to be the country that is, uh, could be a catalyst for something in the future, but I wouldn't call it a new world order that's been created by Russia and China, but it's something that's happening just because Asia is getting stronger and China wants to be front runner in that change. If you read the statement, it's very clear it's drafted by China. <laughs> I thought it was important to share this because we will hear more talk about this after the Olympics, after the Ukrainian war did not happen probably, let's hope for it, and, and then we will t have more talk about that again. Was it too serious? <laughs> no, it's very serious, but very, very interesting. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of all that. So, yeah. yeah. But do read Thanks it. for sharing. I will. I will definitely read it. Any comments to Pascal's uh, statements or questions that, that you have, Peter, Julie? Uh, I think we're going to probably see a shift of world orders in the next couple of years and decades. And I think that's something that has been going on for a long time. The fascinating thing for us is where we live in Europe, we're, I think at this moment, very unclear on how we're going to position ourselves, you know, vis-a-vis -vis those new world structures. And I think that's going to be one of the most exciting and one of the scariest things that we're going to see play out in the next couple of years. And the Ukraine, in my opinion, is just a small piece of that. But yep. the way that this continent is going to either rejuvenate itself and reposition it in a more stable new world order or become completely irrelevant, I think that's going to be decided in the next couple of years. Yeah, I think it's fascinating to see the two dimensions, eh? not only the dynamics in terms of money that are happening in the current world and, and how that is a game that is being played, but also the virtual worlds uh, where we talked about and which economies that they will create. Uh, so a lot of money talk, I would say. We're going to go to a much lighter topic right now, the lightest of the show, maybe, but we need that contrast. Eh? That's what we need. Are you guys familiar with Mr. Beast? I know who he is, but I don't, <laughs> I don't follow him. Yeah. <laughs> Familiar is an interesting wording. Yeah, he, he does crazy things with snakes and other stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Well, it's fantastic what he does. I, and I explicitly have to mention here from my youngest son, Matisse, that it's thanks to him that I got to know Mr. Beast because he got really excited about it and his entire school is all over Mr. Beast. So I wanted to learn more. For people who don't know him, he's the most popular YouTuber at this moment. He's, he's from the States. He was born in 1998, so he's 23 right now, uh, from Kansas, and his real name is Jimmy Donaldson. And he basically started with his YouTube channel when he was 12 just like any 12-year-old would do with gaming content, with Minecraft videos, and he already called him Mr. Beast back then. Today, he has more than 90 million subscribers. And I'm adding this topic because two weeks ago, there was this overview of who made most money with YouTube last year, and Mr. Beast was on number one. He's the best-paid YouTube star of 2021, having 10 billion views, 10 billion views on his channel, he got 54 million in advertising revenues. Uh, last year, if you remember, the best paid YouTuber was Ryan Kaji, who's that 10-year-old boy that's trying out all kinds of new toys. But this year, it's Mr. Beast. And I got really intrigued with his format, because if you've seen his videos, the core of his concept is to give most of his money away. He makes 54 million through advertising. He makes many more millions with other deals. 
but he gives like a million dollars away almost every month on his channel. He gives very exclusive cars away on his channel. He made his own version of Squid Game where people could win half a million dollars. So you can just win a lot of his money. And I thought that this is a unique concept, that there's no one else who's doing that. And it's like in gaming format that he does that. And I was thinking you have all these TV shows everywhere in the world where you can win a dusty car or you can win 5,000 euros or you can win $10,000. And then a few million people are watching that. This guy has like 80 or 90 million views on his shows where he's giving away millions month after month. And I like the idea because if you really dive into what he's doing, his philosophy is I want to create positive change for people who are following me. I want to create positive change for my community. And I want to give most of what I make away. And as a consequence, he's now the best paid person on YouTube. And I found that fascinating, especially when you dive a little bit deeper. It's not just all giving away fancy cars and, and money to people. It's also really trying to use his community to have a positive impact on society. He has like two programs. One is called Team Trees, where the goal is to plant 20 million trees in the next couple of years. They already planted 9 million so far. And his other project is Team Ocean, where he wants to clean up the ocean and wants to clean up the most dirty beaches in the world. And he's bringing in his community to support that. So, and, and if you read his bio on YouTube, basically what he's saying is making other people happy and solving problems is what makes me happy. And I was really impressed. Uh, it looks very superficial if you start with it. It looks like a big show. But it's really cool to see that someone who wants to create positive change for both his followers and for society gets the reward by the world of now being the best paid YouTube star in the world. So I became a fan to, of Mr. Beast thanks to my youngest son, Matisse. What I found fascinating in the top 10 list is that there was only one female in there. And in the top 10, you know what the, the, the only female is? No. It's a seven-year-old girl from Russia called Nastya, who started as a, basically an, an, a typical toy unboxing uh, type of YouTube star. She now has 90 million followers on YouTube. And she made $28 million last year. Wow. I mean, seven years old. I mean, I think that's the kind of stuff that probably makes the other seven-year-olds really depressed when <laughs> they get like 28 euros in pocket money. She gets $28 million. And especially <laughs> the parents of seven-year-olds who feel like complete losers that their child doesn't have this phenomenal YouTube channel. So think about the peer pressure. You know, we didn't yeah. have that when we were growing no. up. <laughs> but what's your next exactly. nickname, uh, Stephen, after Mr. Beast? So we, we're looking forward to <laughs> What, what to would him. you suggest, uh, Julie? What, what is it? You can all do a suggestion for I mean, my new nickname. Yeah, well, I'll think about it. Yeah, we can ask the audience. You can come up with a nickname for my YouTube channel. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's a good idea. But yeah. you, you also have to give away a million dollars, Stephen. That's the, that's the deal. Huh? Yeah. We'll, we'll look into that. Uh, we'll look into that. <laughs> Let's switch quickly to the next topic, is what I suggest. And I'm going to go to Julie. Uh, you always follow everything that has to do with employee happiness, uh, future of work, mm -hmm. and the topic that we've seen, not just in Belgium, but in other places around the world, is the four-day work week. 
What's your opinion on that? Yeah, indeed. I wonder how many days Mr. Beast works. But uh, <laughs> that, We all uh, know the answer, eh? Seven <laughs> out of seven. Yeah, so happy, so passionate. Yeah, and that's exactly my point. I think if you read all about the headlines, the four-day work week, and it seems so fantastic. And then you also had a sort of counter-movement saying like, wow, it must be awful to work. And then I feel like, oh my God, if you're so hating your job, I mean, that must that must not be cool to live like that. So that was my first reaction. Um, so I think the idea itself deserves some, um, yeah, some reflection, like what is it really about? Um, and it's, it's around since a couple of years in some countries where initiatives and experiments are uh, emerging to work four days instead of five. And most of the examples are a bit different than even in Belgium, where you actually really have to work less for the same pay, the same benefits. So in Belgium, the new law that was proposed this week is about doing your full week in four days. So doing it in a more intense way. Uh, well, everywhere around the world, we also see initiatives that simply say, no, you just work less. And we saw initiatives in the UK that are big this year. Uh, Iceland has done multi-year experiments, but actually it all started in New Zealand with a company Perpetual Guardian. It's an estate planning firm who adopted that in 2018. So all of these things have started back before COVID even. Japan followed. I mean, so, so it's sort of a movement that is uh, going around and it's kind of officialized even this year with the four-day week global website actually engaging as many countries as possible to urge their companies to work four days. So I think it's, it's just fascinating to see how many countries, governments, but also companies and even universities who are, of course, analyzing and researching, like, what does this do? What are the results? Uh, for example, there are statistics like it's way easier to attract talent when you do this. Uh, your employees have less stress. But there are others as well saying, I mean, they even have a lot more stress because they have to do the same thing in uh, less time. So it's, it's a big debate of like, what is this actually going to? And I wonder as well, I mean, uh, we used to have a six-day work week and then it's a five-day work week. And is this just a road to the three-day work week? Uh, we also had the Tim Ferriss book with the four-hour work week. I mean, mm -hmm. and it made me wonder, like, what's, what's really our definition of work and does this still apply? Because to me, this sounds a lot like yeah, the rise of capitalism where everything is about efficiency and planning and you work nine to five, coffee at 10, lunch at 12. It's all very planned out. And this system or this discussion about the amount of days kind of relates to that. But I think a lot of our jobs, if you look at a typical day, are really far off this reality. I mean, work has blurred with life immensely. Uh, and that has really been accelerated by the pandemic, I think. We're not going back. People also like that flexibility. I mean, they like to go to the dentist in their workday and gives them basically more freedom and more choice. And I think that's something to mention because it also requires people to make more choices. I think we, we see in this five, four day work week discussion as well that it's not always so easy to manage all those choices. I mean, it's like having a cake on the table during your work, but it's like a whole dessert buffet of things you can do with your day. And people are really starting to think like, what do I want to do with the time that I have in my life? And you see two things. On the one hand, lifestyle courses at Stanford are like ballooning in terms of a number of participants. And on the other hand, we've never had so many people with burnouts, uh, with health, mental health issues, because there's 
just a lot to do and a lot to choose from. And people apparently have a hard time doing that. So I really wonder whether this really is the right statistic to focus on. I liked this week uh, there was a, an interview in Fast Company with uh, Gary Backstrand from uh, OC Tanner. And he also mentioned, I mean, it's also not about these days. It's also not about employee engagement. It's about doing great work. And I think if you look at Mr. Beast, he's so passionate, as you mentioned, uh, Stephen. I think he's so happy with what he does that he seeks a balance for himself. Uh, and whether that's four days or five days, I don't think he will be happy if somebody tells him, like, you have to work four days and not more, for example. And lastly, I think one one final point there is who are we to decide for people? Um All the future of work experts that we work with, I mean, Heather McGowan in the Adaptability Advantage, Shannon Lucas and her work on, on catalysts, they all mention how intertwined work is with our personal identities. So I think identity really matters uh, and it makes total sense that people are looking for ways to make decisions about their week, about their time, about their lives. And I love how much more flexibility we have these days. I just think it, it will require a lot more individual reflection from people and helping them with that um, than just saying, hey, uh, the four-day work week is going to help you out. Yeah, I think it's an extremely difficult topic. I, I fully agree with your analysis, but I think there are two additional elements. There's also a large group of people who work that don't have the flexibility that we like to talk about. Um, I mean, if you have to go to the factory to do your job, if you are a bus driver, if you are working in retail or in hospitality, you need to be there. You have long shifts. There's basically less flexibility than in certain office jobs. So I can imagine that for some people, it can be very relevant to have the option for four days and then have a longer weekend where your job is not the central part in, in your life. I think that's something that we sometimes forget in these discussions. The second thing that I find really interesting is what you said. Uh, um, can we find our passion? You, you have now in the US the great resignation. Uh, a lot of people are stepping away from their jobs. You see here that in certain industries, it becomes really, really hard to find people that are willing to do the job. And a lot of people ask themselves, where, where are they all going? Yeah, or because especially in the US, you need money to survive and now people are stepping away from their jobs. I think what a lot of people forget is that you now have much more options than in the past. I'm sure that some people now become NFT artists or try to create their own web shop, uh, that they had time to figure it out during COVID, they create their own little web shop. Maybe they're making less money than before, but they still have enough money to do what they want. And above that, they now have more time to do things that they want to do. Not for everyone, their job, like Mr. Beats, his job is his passion. But I know many people that have a fantastic passion for something that they're really good at, but it's not their job that brings in the money. What if you can change that and you bring in just enough money so that you have more time for your passion? Those kind of options that the digital world is now bringing, I think, are, are higher than ever. And that's something that employers sometimes forget, that people just have more options than go through a traditional career or a traditional job. And, you know, changing a five-day to a four-day work week will not change that, I think. Either people will just look into the options and figure out what they will do with their life. And for some people, their job is the most crucial part. For other people, it will be their personal passion. And then they will figure out a way how to make that happen, which is a very good evolution, if you ask me. 
Yeah, and I fully agree with the first point you mentioned as well. It's good to have more flexibility. I think it's just, a, as you mentioned, a much broader discussion than that and uh, that we should also talk about how can we lead people to those options and yeah. to their passions. Um, so I exactly. think, um, yeah, it's just scratching the surface. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to stay on this topic a little bit of the great resignation and go to Peter. This evolution, especially in the technology world, is creating new opportunities for tech-savvy people in startups. And what I found really cool, what you wanted to talk about, is that some of these people are actually working now with career agents. I like you are a rock star, then you need an agent. If you're now a tech specialist in the U.S., you may consider to get your own agent. Yeah, absolutely. There's, a, there's actually a U.S. company called Free Agency that just received $10 million of uh, Series A funding. And what they do is they're basically an agent, a talent agent for the tech community. So their baseline is entertainers and athletes have talent agents, shouldn't you? Now, we've known the concept of headhunters, of course, for a long time. But headhunters was like, you know, if you're looking for like a top CEO or like, you know, somebody to populate your board of directors, if you're a public company, that's what the headhunters do. They really focus on that really top, top you know, 0.1% of the workforce out there. And then we have the talent agents, which are, as they said, if you're a movie star or if you're a celebrity speaker or a celebrity athlete, you have an agent that is actually constantly looking at ways to give you a better contract. And now with the enormous complexity that you have in finding tech talent, you now have a company like Free Agency that does exactly the same thing. If you sign up with them in that talent agency, they will constantly actively be looking for opportunities to actually land you a better job. And it's really fascinating because this is a startup from New York City that now has put quite a lot of that tech talent out there. And to give you an idea, they have negotiated compensation above $200 million for the tech talent that they've already put out there. Typically what they do is that if you're a really good machine learning engineer or if you're a really good user interface designer, they will actually then as an agent represent you with the top type of technology companies out there. And they will take between 5 to 10% of your first year salary as compensation. But I think we are going to see not just in the great resignation, but I think in the whole reshift of work and that intense war on talent, which is going to intensify post-pandemic, we're going to see amazing opportunities for these new types of activities to arrive. So I think it's going to be a space that we absolutely have to watch. Beautiful. Yeah. And again, creating options for people to do work in a different way. I think that's just what we're going to see. The flexibility will be enormous. Yeah. Very cool story. And um, uh, just as a small side note, if anyone is wondering what happened to Laurence because you didn't hear her for the last few minutes, the truth is she lost power in her house. She's out of electricity, so she was zoomed out and um, we're missing her, but she's going to be back next time and hopefully the electricity in her house will be fixed really, really soon. So we're going to our last topic of this episode of Radar, and I'm going to end with you, Pascal. You wanted to talk about, again, an interesting evolution in China, where they are creating the China Greater Bay Area. Well, it's, uh, I wanted to talk about something that's happening in the Greater Bay Area, namely a, a global sourcing platform for semiconductors. Because there's a war on talent, but there's also a war on chips these days. 
which means that we can't buy cars fast enough because there's not enough chips to build the cars. And so this, of course, was created by the pandemic. But China is challenged. And China is very much challenged with the fact that um, they are getting these global shortages of chips like everyone else, but they're also the biggest user and buyer of chips and producer or assembling more chips than anyone else in the world. On top of that, the US has put uh, China on entity lists, which means that many of the companies cannot get access to the chips in China. So there's a big war on chips happening. And what's interesting is that Shenzhen has been chosen by Beijing. The Ministry of Commerce has been chosen as the city to create a global platform for purchasing, for procurement of chips anywhere in the world. And so they're really focusing, they're trying to open up. It's like an open ecosystem for buying chips and anything related to it, which could be like uh, electronic parts, it could be raw materials and so on. And what's happening is now that China, because they have access to a lot of these, you could call it more commodity parts and raw materials, they're putting that weight into that global platform and leveraging actually their power of certain parts of that to go together with a lot of partners. So anybody can join that platform and any supplier, any producer, but also people who are buying the chips, they can go on that platform and they can together negotiate certain chips as an entity. And so what China is now doing is they're creating this platform in Shenzhen to really allow a kind of an ecosystem, an innovation ecosystem around Shenzhen about purely chips and everything around it. And of course, the pandemic has created this whole issue. Interesting on the chip industry, I don't know if you follow that a little bit, but it's that actually even before the pandemic, there's always been challenges with oversupply or undersupply of chips. They call it sometimes the pork cycle business from the 1920s when there's suddenly too much pork or too little pork. I mean, and and with chips is the same thing. The result of it is that for the past years before the pandemic, most uh, big manufacturers were not building enough new fabs. They weren't investing a lot and they kept at 80% capacity constantly. So they could go a little bit up and a little bit down. But then suddenly with the whole pandemic, what happens is, yeah, everybody's buying laptops, they're buying game consoles, they need things for cloud computing. And so everything shifted and the demand changed completely. And the interesting thing in the car industry is because the car industry was worried with the pandemic, of course, that people weren't going to buy cars, suddenly they stopped all their orders and they didn't place any orders for chips. The result of it is that now they're on the back of the queue to buy the new chips. And so this is a constant movement, a roller coaster up and down. And it's all about lobby work these days. And so what China is trying to do here with this global sourcing platform is to say, okay, we're not going to try to have all these little lobbying closed platforms. What we're going to do, we're going to open this up. And we're going to create momentum and actually size and scale and see if we can actually sort that. The result of it is that there's an enormous amount of chip manufacturers now being created in China. In the rest of the world, you see America, the American Chip Act or the European Chip Act. They're all chipping in literally billions of dollars. Intel and iMac and others are starting to get lots of money and dollars and euros to produce new fabs. Well, in China, it's hundreds. In the last year, there was 22,000 new IC companies that were created in China. There was 32 that went public in China. Everybody's becoming an IC company in China. 
And not just the big guys, because today Huawei is an IC company. They're building their own ICs. Alibaba's, Tencent is, Xiaomi is, Oppo is. I mean, there's almost no company out there anymore that is not building chips right now, or at least designing them. But what's interesting is that China is taking a different stance than the rest of the world. The rest of the world, what you see is that they want to build the most advanced chips. China kind of sees a different world. And the different world is a world of IoT and 5G. And what that means is that you need lots of chips. You need volume. You need to be able to have sensors everywhere, controllers everywhere. And it's not about building the three nanometer chips. It's about maybe the 14 or 20 nanometer or 12 nanometer, but you need a lot of them. And China's starting to build the factory of the world of, you could call it commodity electronics. And they already are that in many places, but now they want to move up that chain and take that platform as a leverage. So I think by doing that, they're kind of ending that race for the chip development, saying like, yeah, we don't per se want to be the number one, but we want to be the biggest. And by being the biggest, we're actually going to make so much money and so much power that we're going to be able to buy these chips. Of course, politically, that could change still, but this is the direction that China is going to. So Shenzhen is going to be a, a source for solving the future of chip demand globally when it comes to the new IoT and 5G connected industry 4.0 world, which I think is very exciting to look at. And so we should all watch what's happening in that new global sourcing platform in Shenzhen. Thank you. Very cool. Very interesting. Very impressive. All right. Well, we reached the end of this episode. So I want to thank Julie Pascal and Peter and Laurence for being here. And just two more questions to our audience. If you liked our show, feel free to share it with your network. And it would mean the world to us if you could just take the link of the podcast and send it to one of your friends and one of your colleagues and tell them that this is something that they would like. This helps us to grow our audience and that would be amazing for us. Second thing is, if you have any questions or if you want to challenge some of the things that we've been talking about, feel free to share that on our social networks and we will talk about that in the next episode of Radar. Thank you very much for listening and see you back in March. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Radar by Nextworks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.